Would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 25, which I believe is page 708, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats. I'm in a predicament this morning, which is I have two parables. They're good parables, uh, but I don't, I don't have time to do them both well. I don't even know if I have time to do either well. Uh, what I want to do is I want to push through the first. So I'm, only, I'm, I'm going to just give you maybe just enough detail to navigate some of the uh, context. And, um, and then we'll get to this. Uh, and then I'll read it. And every parable ends in a question for you. Okay? You know you're reading a parable when you feel the question of God fall on you. That's uh, the goal of a parable is to challenge you. So uh, hopefully we'll read it and spend just enough time that you can have the question. And then we'll get to the other one. Uh, well, you know, let's pray though. Let's, let's pray because we just, Lord, help us uh, make our minds active for your teaching. Make us thoughtful that your return is not um, a distant idea, Lord, but that your union with us is a pervasive idea. That the soul of the Christian ought to always be saying, come Lord, come quickly. Always be saying it. Uh, but in this duration, in this time, Lord, uh, use this teaching to make our life fruitful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a parable. Uh, the Bible calls it the parable of the ten virgins. And uh, some of your, book, or your Bibles might have uh, bridesmaids, depending on the translation, or maidens. That's more uh, what it is. It is a little bit hard for people to read sometimes because the, the thought is, is what is the groom going to marry one or some of these ten virgins? I think the best way to think about this as we go into this, this parable is that they're part of a large communal bridal, uh, well, marriage party. They're not actual candidates for marriage. They're part of the crowd and they want to be part of the feast. Marriages back then were not ceremonial events as much as they were kind of communal festivities. So in my last four days, it typically would culminate into the feast that you're going to see here. But, but I just don't want you to think as we go in reading that uh, the groom who is the Lord, right, the Lord is the husband of his people, that he's going to marry, it's just that five virgins. That's not, this is not a polygamous parable. Uh, that's what it's not. So a little bit of uh, cultural distance sometimes makes things sound as though they aren't. Let me read it. Chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. 
And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Uh, if I could offer one, you know, when I think of the end of the world, sometimes I think it's, it's heavy on my heart, heavy on my chest. Um, the awesome awfulness of God seems to be present. I want to point out this parable. It's a marriage feast. So the end of the world is as much an invitation into something as it is a warning against something. God, when God comes to those who know him, to those who are ready, it's a great feast. This is... uh, the reality of the judgment of God at the end does not dismiss the fact that through the whole, this whole time, God is reaching out to the earth to invite them to a feast. And that's our calling, right? It's to cast the invitation of God to his marriage feast wide to all the world. Bring as many in. There's other parables where the Lord tries to cram his house with guests for a feast. And so I don't want us to miss that, right? I don't want us to be so caught up in the five foolish virgins here of what they were not that we miss what God is trying to do. God has a great feast, a great celebration, a great union, a great moment, a great experience that he's trying to bring many, many people into. And some are foolish or unwise or mistaken. Now, since we have to move, this, I think, we're just going to push through this one. Here's, here's the point of this parable. When the bridegroom's ready to go, you're not going to have time to get ready. That's the point. When the bridegroom arrives, you are either ready or you're not ready. You either have it or you don't. Right? Either the flame is lit or the flame is not lit. And you don't have the time when he gets here to go get holy. Like this, I don't mean to make this an allegory, but you can't wait until Jesus comes to get your Holy Ghost fire on, right? It's either on in his absence, which makes it real, or it ain't. That's this parable. And you can't borrow it from anyone else, by the way. So I'm grateful. I'm very grateful that I had grandmothers who prayed for me all the time. I'm sure that ministered in my life, but when Jesus comes... I don't get in off my grandma's faithfulness. Either you have it or you don't. This is the the point of this first parable. Is it's going to come? It's going to come when you're not expecting it. So either you're always ready or you're not ready. Okay. So which one are you? There, let's move. But it's a good question. This is, this, but this parable is so good. Gosh, we've got to spend time in this one. Ah, they're both good. I'm going to go to verse 14. You ready? For it will be like a man going on a journey 
who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, a talent is a weight of money. Just to start there, a talent is a weight of money. And if we look into this a parable, uh, we're just going to kind of walk through the, the thinking of it. What you see in the 14th verse is an idea of entrusting. The master is going on a trip and he entrusts some sum of money to the servants. It wasn't theirs. Didn't belong to them. They had no claim on it. It is his money he's entrusting to his servants when he leaves. Okay, the church should hear this very clearly. Everything we have is not ours. It's his that has been entrusted to us during his departure. And then in the 15th verse, we see something else. We see that it's entrusted to his servants based upon their ability. The Lord is the judge of of who's uh, able to do what, and he, he bases his investment, if you want to think of it that way, the endowment that's given to the servants is based upon the Lord's right judgment of their ability. 
Now, someone say this means that God's unfair. I totally disagree. I think this shows that God is perfectly fair. Because the Lord is not asking more of you than you're able. Nor is the Lord going very easy on the person who's highly able. The Lord's standard of expectation remains constant despite one's abilities. So to the person who's able to do much, God expects much. To the person who's able to do little, God expects that person to labor much even if it produces little. Same expectation, same judgment. In that sense, it is heresy in the church to think that there's someone who's here who is not not useful to the kingdom. The Lord has entrusted to you according to your ability. We see this, by the way, displayed very nicely upon his return. When he comes, did you notice that he says exactly the same thing, precisely the same thing to the first two servants? He doesn't... He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. You'll be given much. Enter into the joy of your master. He goes to the second one with two talents who would produce two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. You'll get much. Enter into the joy of your master. He doesn't say to the one who yielded great amounts, five talents, whoa, I knew you were the 18. He didn't say that. His, his spirit of joy is constant. In other words, remember, it was the Lord's money in the first place. The Lord is not concerned with how much you do. The Lord is concerned about his rate of return on you. The Lord is concerned with how faithful you are given who you are. By the way, I think that's the reason there's three servants in this parable. I think it's a very important reason there's three servants in this parable. Had there been two servants, I think the church would be prone to make this mistake often. Had there been a good servant who yielded much and a bad servant who yielded little, we'd be, we'd be inclined to think we have to do much. And then you'd look in the church and you'd see the Mother Teresa or the Billy Graham and you'd be like, oh my gosh, why even try? I'm going to need talents. Look how, look how productive they are. I'm so pathetic. The Lord enters in this middle servant to build a different principle, which is it has nothing to do with how much you generate. It has to do with how engaged you are to meet the expectation of the Lord based upon what he's given you. You don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to be Mother You don't have to. You have to be fully you before the Lord. I mean, oh, this is such a great parable. There's no escape. There's an equity in the expectation of the Lord. You're not given more than you can handle, but you're given something to handle. We'll come back to how much you've been given. It's the tendency here to calculate how many talents you have. We'll get, we'll get to that. Uh, verses 16 through 18, you see the servants display uh, two different ways to live. You have the first two servants who the verse says, at once get to the work of the master. At once they go off and set about generating increase based upon what the master has given them. In other words, 
the moment the sum of money hits their hands and the master turns to leave, they are at work for the master. It means they see the endowment of God in their life and have a sense of purpose about it. This is the beauty of the Christian, is we have the opportunity to see what God has placed in our life and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's great purpose in it. Great, immediate, at once purpose in it. Start with the people around you and tell yourself they are not around you by accident. But the Lord has very precisely placed you here among them. Now get to work at once. You see, that's the disposition of the first two servants. The third servant, verse 18, he digs a hole. He puts the town on the ground. There's, there's a total disconnection in this servant's mind of what God, what his Lord has bestowed upon him and a responsibility or purpose to do something with it. Total disconnection. In the 19th verse, the, the master comes back and you see you see, he calls his servants to account. And, and you see, the five talents yields five more talents. The two talents yields two more talents. And in that account, there is that language. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. I, I, uh, we're going to take a tangent uh, just because uh, I think this is a great moment. This is, this is heaven for me, by the way. Right here. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. I don't want a harp. I don't want a cloud. I don't want a halo. And God doesn't give that to me. I don't know how that started in the church. The image of paradise with the Lord is to be purposely driven with him and his riches. I get that. Like, I am thrilled I am charged. I pray about this. Not in a bizarre way, just I fancifully daydream about the Lord, about life with him and continued purpose and, and work. Not, like the, not in the laborious way of the gift for more work or good work is more work. I don't mean that way. I mean the fact that we never exit the realm of purposefulness with the Lord. That, that's, oh, that's just better than a harp. It's so good. By the way, and it's, it's, it's various many places in the scripture, so I don't think I'm over-digging here. Maybe if this was the only place you'd say he's over-digging. I will say, chapter 24, verse 47, if you go back there, 46, 47, okay? It's a parallel parable. This, these two parables are telling the same thing, which is what it means to be ready, okay? The ten virgins in the parable of the thief just before them, they were in parallel saying, how, remember, he comes quickly. You'll either be ready or you won't. These two parables are, what does it mean to be ready? And in this parable last week, what was the reward to the good servant? Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Do you see the increase, the increase of ownership in the kingdom of God? That is thrilling to me. It's... It, I'm going to use the word exhilarating. This is an exhilarating idea for me. 
that the fact that when I, when the Lord, when heaven and earth are once again reunited and the presence of God is with man and he's with us and the new earth and all things are being new, that our lives will be purposefully driven in his will. Wake up in the morning and I'll have something to do for him. And I'll do it well because I'll be glorified in him. I won't be failing anymore. That is exhilarating for me. But it's a tangent, but it is exhilarating. But this is the reward they receive. And I do, I do want to just put it up there as a stop against what I just think is just the cloudy vision of heaven. That's not it. We're being invited into more full life with God. That's how he rewards these two servants. And then we get to 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Did you have, was there any tip-off in this parable that that was the way the master was? I mean, did you, as we're going through this parable, as we're reading this parable, before you get to that line, did you have way in the back of your mind, this sounds like a pretty harsh master. This sounds like a reaper where he doesn't sow her. Is that, was that in you when you're reading through this? I didn't see it, to be honest with you. I saw a master who gave his servants five talents, two talents, and one talent when he left. I saw a master that when he arrived, well, I saw a master who's the first two servants who are able, more able, that their disposition was not, oh, here's the harsh master, sowing where he doesn't reap, reaping where he doesn't sow, and gathering where he scatters no seed. I don't see that in them. I see they studiously and diligently go to ply themselves for the work of the master. And when I see the master arrive, I don't see a harsh master going, what do you got for me? I see, well done. Well done. You know, there's a time when you're raising kids that they, they'll labor for a smile or for approval. You know? It, sometimes it's fleeting, and sometimes it comes and it goes, but when it's there, you see it. When, or when you just accidentally do the right thing, and you're like, that's great. I'm really proud of you, the way you did that. And you just see them. <sighs> well done. That well done has power with these servants. It doesn't sound like a harsh master to me. But this servant, I knew you to be harsh. So I buried it. I don't think the master believes him for a second. <clears throat> Notice the master doesn't say, you mistaken servant. You just, you mistaken you. You made a mistake about me. He doesn't say you mistaken servant. Verse 26, he says, you wicked and slothful servant. The master goes straight to the hard issue. He says, this is not a mistake about me. You are culpable for how your mistaken understanding of me. 
you are wicked because you've chosen to think this about me. In fact, he says to them, he, there's even the ESV gives a question to it in the verse. He says, like, so as to sound this way, if I was such a harsh master, always trying to reap where I didn't sow and gather where I scattered no seed, why then wouldn't you have just given it to the bank? Then you would have at least been guaranteed some measure of payback, some kind of in return on the investment, but you didn't even do that. That's how that verse is, kind of sounds. In other words, your behavior is not even emblematic of that disposition. You're lazy. And you're wicked. The other servants at once get to work. This one and goes about his merry life. A complete disconnect from what God has given this servant to God's expectation for what should happen. He buries it, and he's done. There's not even the sign of cautious investment. We, we, if we were going to try to be all financial about this, and I would be the worst person to do that, but if we're going to be all financial, we'd say it wasn't even a wise, cautious investment. And that's what the master says. He says, listen, if you were safety-oriented, it still would have looked different. In other words, this is not a parable of a faithful but timid servant. This is the parable of a slothful servant who sees no purpose in their life with the Lord. What you see here is there's this distance between that servant and the Lord. There's distance which breeds fear. There's misunderstanding. But that distance, the Lord is attributing the blame for that distance on the servant. It's essentially, essentially the Lord saying, you don't know me and you should have known me. Do you realize in the Christian life how, how much our behavior our earthly behavior, the things we do with our hands and our minds and our words and our mouth and our ears, all the things we do there, how much it has to do, how much it's linked to our conception of the Lord, to what we think about God. What you think about God shapes your worldview, how you behave. And this servant has chosen to think things about the Lord has chosen to think things about the Lord that's pushed distance between him and God and has separated him from the purpose of the Lord. The first two appreciate him with purpose. Tons of purpose. They have faith that God entrusted. They know, they know the moment the money hits their hand that God entrusted them with this for some return. And that God, listen to this, and that God keenly understands their ability. So the Lord's not asking more, but the Lord is expecting some labor for him. The third is self-focused. No concept of purpose and therefore a waste of what's been given. Uh, I wanted to offer you, it's, it's harder to say than it is just to give you an example. Uh, when you may have this experience, this, is, this should be a common experience to anyone who kind of enters into a faith conversation on the East Coast. Um, right, you know, pretty much our kind of people all think they're going to heaven. If there's a God, they're going to heaven. That's what everybody thinks. And when you sit down to visit with them about it, if 
typically it's an uncomfortable conversation. Why? Because God is distant. And so they've just, there's assumptions have been made, but they haven't really truly been worked out. But if you sit down and you really work through it, this is a very common answer that you get. So how do you know you're going to go to heaven? They say, because I did not do anything that bad. I never murdered anybody. You know, I didn't do anything that wrong. This is the third servant. That's the third servant. Do you see the third servant's justification is that he didn't do anything wrong? I didn't mess up. To which the Lord says, his master, the inclination of his master is, I gave it to you to do something. And yet his defense of the servant is, is, oh, I didn't do anything wrong with it. I'm saying that everyone who's convinced that they belong to the master, everyone who's convinced they're a good servant, many, many of them are living under this false excuse that, well, I must be a good servant because I haven't done anything that wrong, which is tantamount to just bearing the purpose of God for your life. And you see this, churches can be this way. Churches can be built and defined about the things that they don't do. We don't, we don't you know, smoke, drink, or chew, or date those who do. The, the whole kind of, uh, I don't want to label it, but that whole disposition of we're good because of what we don't do. The kingdom says you're known by the things you do do. That's what the Lord's curious about is to call us into his work, to make us fruitful for his work, to make us obedient in his work. Not to not do stuff. People are still grinning because I said doo-doo. <laughs> this is his excuse. Here's the irony. Here's the irony in this uh, parable. is the one servant who wanted to take no risk gambled his life away. And that's Ironic that the one servant whose concept of God is that he's an angry God meets an angry God. Those who believe God is a loving God are invited to the feast. Do you see how your conception of the Lord affects so much of your life? The one whose judgment orienting his life around avoiding judgment is the one who finds himself as the object of judgment. Now, if you're in the margins, right? You know, if you're, if you're not sure what you think about God, you may point to this and go, this is exactly, <laughs> that servant is right. Look, exactly. Told you. He's worried about this harsh master and what does he find? He finds his master is harsh. God is angry and God is distant. You might look at this and say, this is, this is exactly, he was rightly worried because look at the God he finds. And I would say, I would agree with you. I would be, I would be tempted to have to agree with you if we were trying to, if I was preaching about the storm God that's blowing outside and that we have to go sacrifice a child to the storm God to appease him. If that's the kind of Deity we were talking about, I'd say you have a point. God's distant. Or if it was a volcano god, we had to throw a bunch of calves in to keep the lava from stopping. I would say I understand the idea of God being distant. This is not that God. 
Look, he told us all about himself. Like hundreds. This is the biggest book I ever read. And it's about God. It's by God to you to tell you he is not distant. And the, our God does not lead with anger. Our God leads with love and grace. John 3.16 is not for God so hated the world that he sent his son to judge it. It is for God so loved the world that he sent his only son who gave his life for us. Like our story, I'm saying this because if you're at a distance from God, it's because you're keeping your distance. Because this story is not of a distant God. This story is a God who became flesh and made his dwelling place among us. It's about a God who's drawn close to us. It's about a Lord who knows how we feel, knows how we suffer, and yet is without sin, who's been tempted in every way and yet has remained standing. It's about a God who completely and comprehensively knows all that's going on inside of you and can sympathize and empathize with it and yet has stood and done the right thing and can call you to it. It's about a Lord who has shed his blood so that you might live. It's about a God who you can make mistake after mistake after mistake, but on account of his son can forgive you and invite you and adopt you and call you his own son and daughter. That's the God of scripture. He's not distant. If he's distant to you, you're keeping him at arm's length. I'm just saying, at the judgment day when the master comes, there's going to be all sorts of lame excuses. But God is distant and angry, does not work. How do we keep our distance? How are you keeping your distance? I mean, the parable, the challenge of the parable is, which servant are you? Do you see all that the Lord's given you as, as purposeful for his glory? Or is life about you and you bury the purpose of God to get about your life? Because that is wicked and slothful. I'll give you another question. Do you realize that God is simply not hoping that this is not a self-help parable, okay? This is not you to walk away going, what God wants me to do is live life to the fullest. Okay, you got close. It's like, uh, you know, you jumped and you barely missed. God's intent for you is not to live life for the fullest. God has endowed you with a trust to live life for the fullest for him. Okay, there's a key there. It's divinely purposeful. It's not for you to discover yourself. It's for you to be discovered in his purpose. That's the best way to know yourself, is to know yourself in light of the Lord who's given you everything. Even the wicked servant rightly says, here's what's yours. and gives it back to him. Everything you have belongs to the Lord, and when he comes, he's going to take it back. And either take it back, bless you, and give you more, or take it and give it to someone else who is faithful. We're known most and best as we know ourselves in the purpose of God. And, and then uh, here's a third question. The one you may be asking, which is, well, what has God left me with? Am I, are you the five-talent person? Are you the two-talent person? Are you a half-talent person? What are you? There's, it, it's not talents, by the way, like gifts and talents. Um, but that's kind of curiously helpful. That's just is the way the language 
the English language scored there. You know, right on. Uh, that we kind of got a rhymy word with that. It's not that. And the reason I say it's helpful is because certainly when we look at how God made us, we should, we should have a sense of purpose in that. Your temperaments, your gifts, your talents, all of that belongs to the Lord. The, the, the more we come to realize that, the more we're able to place it under his subjection and use it for him. But I think you're stopping short when you think of, your, of God wants me to invest my gifts and my talents for him. I still think that's not... Talent was a sum of money. It, it's not only what it's saying. I would say, think about all of who you are. Who are you? That, whoever that is, that, and I mean, so your gifts and your talents, but your experiences and your testimony and your setting and the people around you, maybe things you call weaknesses and handicaps. You may be most wealthy in your weakness. Do you ever think of that? Like you may sit here and you may say, I'm like a, I'm like a two-penny servant because God saved me from nothing and like your soul is all tattooed up. I mean, you just, every, it's all over the place. There's mistakes. You may, you be slow to assess your value. I don't even know if that's helpful. I would say work to know yourself, but don't put a value on that because I tell you what, some people who come from nothing and they kind of have a humble disposition before the Lord do great and marvelous things for the Lord. I would say, if you're raised in a healthy church and you've grown up among healthy Christian people and you've had a a healthy Christian home and you've had a healthy Christian environment, and if you know all the Bible stories, I I would say, be careful, you've been given a lot. I would say that. I would say, it was not made for you to kind of rebel against and go find yourself on was carefully invested in you. And make it fruitful for the Lord. I'll close with this. What if it's just one talent? What if all we're given is one talent? Huh? Do you know how much a talent is? You might have a note in your Bible. It's 20 years of pay. 20 years of pay. So let's say you're, sir, just say you're working class. You're making, I can't do good math, so $30,000 a year. That's, that's, that's like unskilled labor. Your master well, left you with $600,000. Man, like the loser here is rich. Do you realize that? Like you and your measly old self, like... If I'm just, I don't think this about you, but if you're nothing but a ratty old carcass with no skills and gifts, God has still endowed you with the wealth of the kingdom. The gospel alone is a talent, is a fortune, is a benefit. Do you realize that? Do you realize there is no poverty in the kingdom because of what you've been given in Christ? Like, when the Lord comes back, what will you have done with the lavish fortune of his grace? that has been bestowed upon you. I mean, if we were just faithful, one-talent Christians, oh, the Lord would say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
Who are you? Let's pray, Lord. May we be found ready when you come back, and may we be found fruitful. Lord, I do pray you just breathe your purpose into people. Just blow it into them, Lord. Lord, we repent because I pray that we might be repentant about the ways we've buried your grace, we've set about, we're too busy in our own lives, we don't have time for you, so we bury it. Get along with our own sense of purpose, our own life, our own story. Devoid or divorced from you, Lord, forgive us for that. Forgive us for the small ways we do that, Lord. I pray that you'd, uh, you'd rush in and have grace and forgiveness for those who do it in big ways. Call them to repentance, Lord. Make us mindful that when you come, you are looking for a fruitful rate of return, Lord, that this earth is full of, of people who don't know you, full of opportunity for kingdom gain. Worry about to invest ourselves. Make us faithful, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.